Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, please be seated. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Village Church East. If I don't know you, my name is Craig Jarvis, and I am the pastor here, lead pastor at Village Church East, and uh, I'm excited to start a brand new series with you today. Uh, this is a brand new one. It's going to last for two weeks, and we're going to be studying the life of John the Baptist. Yes, uh, the guy that we all know and get confused with John, the other John that uh, that was so close to Jesus in the inner three circle. Well, this is a completely different John, and it's interesting. The first thing we're going to talk about John is actually what we named the series, and that is, why was John the Baptist so great? Here's my question to you this morning. Ready? I'm glad you're sitting down for it because I've asked a bunch of people this question and come up with a bunch of different answers. So you are the most intelligent that I've asked so far. So here we go. Well, some of you are. You know who you are. Here we go. What makes a life great? All right? What makes a li- now, I ask people this question. I got a variety of different answers. All right? So your question this morning is what makes a life great? Now, how would you answer that? You don't have to answer it right away because you need some time to think about it because it's not typically the question that we deal with in our minds over and over again, what makes a life great? Although most people would like to have a great life, right? I'd like to have a great life. But what makes a life great? Uh, Sunday school answers, you know, you've got loving Jesus. Yes, all right. All right, Timmy, here's your gold star. That's great. But we're asking like adults, we want to know what makes a life great. Now, here's my second question for you this morning, all right? Now, what makes a life great? You got that answer in your head? Got it? All right. Why did you answer it the way you did? Oh. I type that question into the World Wide Web. Sometimes I have to be careful of what I type into the World Wide Web, Uh, but they have the Google machine at work, and that knows everything, so I typed in what makes a life great, and I came up with a variety of answers. And you could try this at home. No, No weird, well, no strange things came up. But uh, on, on the page, it said, what makes a life great? And I looked at them all, and they were strikingly similar. All of the people in their mother's basements and their PJs typing on the World Wide Web said basically the same kind of things about what makes a life great. Typically, this is what I found. Good relationships, wealth, fame, a good high IQ, even good genes. All of these things make a life great. All of them centered around a happiness or satisfaction that you could bring into your own world. That makes your life great. It's, it's, it, in fact, it was the longest, it, it came down to whatever is the longest stint of happiness in your life for the longest amount of time. The bottom line is, are we still on? All right. The bottom line is the internet defines a great life as a happy, extended, personal experience that works for you over a period of time. Let me tell you one more time. Are we still online? Okay. All right, so if you're online and you're not getting a picture right now, uh, that's, that's actually not surprising because we don't have anything in-house either. So hopefully we'll get up soon, and hopefully that's it. Okay, so bottom line, the Internet def- identifies a great life as a happy, extended, personal experience that you can find for yourself. Extend the happiness 
for the longest period of time and you will find a great life. Everything centers around self-satisfaction. Now, you may be the kind of person that says, no, 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 that's not what a great life. I want to err on the side of nobility. A life is great if it's nobly spent. For instance, a policeman. We have some policemen in our, in our midst in this church. That is a noble, great life. Or a fireman. We have firemen here also, right? That is a noble, great life, being a firefighter. Or, or how about being a good dad or a good mom or a good spouse? Uh, or you could say being a, being a teacher. Or how about being a frontline worker in the hospital? We have some of those in-house as well, right, Carrie? So we have, we have folks in here that are, according to that principle of living a great life, living noble lives and therefore great lives. How about even being a teacher nowadays? I might put that in the great life category because these poor teachers that have to do their teaching online or in-house or we don't know where the kids are going to show up, but... They're still the same kids no matter where they are. They're still playing on the phones and not paying attention. And the teachers have to faithfully do their jobs. What makes a life great? I would have answered that question differently at different times in my life. When I was younger, I would have said, I would like to have a great life. And in my mind, what that meant was, I wanted to be like a, a fixer for a large company, travel the world and be the front man for the company. If there's any challenges in this company or anything, they would send Craig to the front lines. I'd woo them with my sparkling personality, fix all the problems that they have, and be a man in demand. That's what I thought my life should be about. That's what I thought would be my definition of a great life. And it wasn't until uh, I went to college and long story short, uh, the Lord got a hold of my life and changed a direction for me. Instead of going into business and traveling around the world, God changed that direction. And now I am what I, what I think God has directed me to be, a pastor, a shepherd for God's people. Because I was forced to ask a different question. Not what makes my life great, not what does the internet consider a great life should be. Not even what I would consider a great life to be, but I was forced at college when planning my future and going down the direction I thought I should go, the Lord got a hold of my life and changed the question for me. And the question changed to, what does God have for my life that will make it great? Over these next two weeks, we're going to be looking at a man called John the Baptist, a man who lived with the same question in mind, and a man who Jesus called the greatest man who ever was born. Did you know that about John the Baptist? Let's dive in this morning. John chapter 1, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is John the Apostle writing in his gospel about John the Baptist, he is a witness, he, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Let's talk about John the Baptist, the man. According to this verse, his whole life was about one purpose. It's right there in the verse. God breathed life into John the Baptist so that he could fulfill his great purpose in life, and that was to bear witness 
about Jesus Christ, about the Messiah. I started thinking about what kind of an analogy would go along with this. Like, what kind of a good illustration could I give you that would stick in your head? And here's the one I came up with. John the Baptist was like a DJ at a wedding. Now, I've been to some pretty crummy weddings where the DJs made it crummy, right? All the attention was on them. They wanted to, they, they just did their own thing. But I've been to some pretty good weddings where the DJ kind of played his role well. And the big climactic moment for any DJ worth his salt is the moment when he announces the, the bridal party. And most specifically, when he announces the brand new bride and groom. The brand new family walking through the door. And then everything from there is cake. It's just celebration of that announcement. John the Baptist was a good DJ. He lived for the moment when the doors would open and the Messiah would be revealed to the world and the DJ gets to pronounce, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to present to you for the very first time, Mr. and Mrs. Jarvis, only his, his, John, I'd like to present to you for the very first time, Jesus, who is the Messiah. In fact, I would say that John would agree with this explanation of who he was. If you look in John 1 and you go down to verse 22, here's what it says further about John the Baptist. People were curious about who John was. And John would say, don't look at me, don't try and figure me out. My life is not about me. Look what he says in verse 22. They said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What, What do you say about yourself? Like, who are you, John the Baptist? Because he was getting a following. He had disciples. He was teaching people. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day were a little scared of that. They're losing their, you know, they lose their flock to this nut job. So they go check him out and find out who he is. And they said, we need to give an answer to the people who sent us because you're getting noticed. So who are you? And he said in verse 23, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John was about not making a kingdom for himself, but making a kingdom for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not making much of himself, but making much of Jesus. And he was happy with not getting the recognition, but pointing all the recognition when others, to, to others who would see Jesus Christ and experience faith in him. In fact, John wanted to make his life about decreasing so Jesus could increase Here's what it says in John 1.27, down a little further. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. You know what that is in English? John says, my life is nothing compared to this guy coming through the door. I'm just the DJ announcing the Messiah coming, and he's going to be so spectacular. You're not going to believe it. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Later on in chapter 3 and verse 30, John says, here's the deal. I must, uh, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's an amazing guy, right? He has disciples, he has a following, he's a powerful individual. The religious leaders have recognized him. He's a bit of a threat to them. Eventually, they throw him in jail, and his whole message is, wait, 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 wait. it's not me. It's Jesus. 
It's not me. It's the Messiah. My job is simply to tell you, there he is. I'm making straight the way. If you follow me, I'm going to walk on this path. You follow me, I'll lead you to who you need to follow. He did this for one reason. If you look back in John 1, 7, our main passage, it simply says, he did this so that all might believe through him. If comparing John's purpose in life to a wedding announcer is not a unique comparison. John the Baptist himself compared himself to a wedding announcer. Did you know that? So apparently I didn't come up with the idea. John did. Look at this in John 3, verse 28. I was a little disappointed to see this because I thought maybe I stole John's stuff subconsciously. Here's what it says in John 3, 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, John the Baptist says. I'm not the Christ. I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. He's the friend of the bridegroom that is saying, the attention is not on me, it's on that guy over there. John was sitting at the banquet. He wasn't even talking to people around him at the wedding. He is literally sitting on pins and needles waiting for the door to crack so that a small vision of the Messiah could be seen. And then he says, everybody shut it. Look at who's coming through the door. His whole life was to point everyone to Jesus Christ. And when he succeeded in this task, if you look back at that verse, can you throw that verse up there one more time? If you look at back at this verse in John 3 and verse 28, uh, it says uh, in verse 29, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now what, church? Complete. I have ultimate joy because I have introduced the Messiah to you. John thought his purpose in life was complete just by introducing people to Jesus Christ. In fact, he would say, this gives my life the most, longest amount of satisfaction. Let me give you a little bit of John's background. He was a unique bird. John the Baptist was a new guy. And if you've noticed some of the, some of the slides this morning, in fact, our, our introductory slide, you'll see a little locust on there. Does anybody know why there's a locust on our main slide? And there's a little one actually down there in the corner. What does the locust stand for? Yeah, he ate them. <laughs> and it wasn't a dare. He just liked eating them. He was like a wilderness man who lived out in the wilderness. He wore camel skins. He ate honey from straight from the honeycomb, which isn't bad, I will say. But I've never tried the locust. Maybe he dipped them. I don't know. But either way, he's eating stuff in the wilderness. He is a wilderness guy. He's a bit of a hermit, a bit of, a bit of an oddball. He's a strange bird. In fact, he looked a lot like Elijah. Elijah is an Old Testament prophet. And if you look at how Elijah looked and behaved, it is strikingly similar to guess who? John the Baptist. He dressed the same way. He ate the same wilderness food. Not the trail mix you buy at, uh, what's that store I, it's too expensive to shop at? Trader Joe's. Not the, uh, <laughs> not the trail mix you get at Trader Joe's. This is the real thing. Religious rulers of the day actually asked John, they said, are you Elijah? 
because Scripture says who Elijah was, and you remind us exactly of Elijah. And you might read that, and you might think to yourself, why would the religious leaders of the day ask him if he was Elijah? It's because of this. They believed Elijah would be reincarnated, and, and that he would be reincarnated and institute the time of judgment, the end of all things. When Israel would get back their land, all their enemies would be vanquished. They're waiting for Elijah to show up. He would bring about the restoration of their land because all hell's going to break loose when Elijah showed up. So they're constantly looking for the prophet or they're looking for Elijah. And John the Baptist looked a lot like Elijah. So they asked him if he was Elijah. Elijah would show up someday, the Old Testament says, and he would, he would institute this time of judgment so that Israel would regain their place of power in the world. This is Israel's history. They knew if they sinned, they would be thrown into captivity or they would be under oppression. This had happened in Egypt. This has happened with Babylon. This has happened with Greece. Over and over again, Israel has been oppressed by their, by their enemies. And if they looked at Scripture, it's because they weren't living like they should. They were oppressing the poor, given over to idol worship, whatever it was. They would always read the book of Judges. It happens over and over and over again. Their thinking was, if we're bad people... God will give us an oppressive society. But if we're good people, God will bring back Elijah and let the good times begin. So they're waiting for Elijah to show up. Elijah's appearance, it believed, would let you know that you are coming close to achieving goodness enough for God to notice. And he would begin moving to make Israel a better place to be. This was, by the way, the go-to message of the Pharisees. The Pharisees constantly told people, you got to be better, you got to be good, you got to clean out those closets, you got to try to be the best person you can be because if we're good enough, we'll get God's attention, Elijah will show up, and the good times, it's just gravy from here. So people believed them, and they waited for Elijah. To be fair, this is how the Old Testament ended. The last book of the Bible written by the great Italian prophet Malachi, that's funny, it's actually Malachi. Malachi wrote in Malachi 4 verse 5, this is the last book of the Bible, and here's what he says, behold I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers and the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That was written as a last book of the Bible, and that's what they're hanging on to. Maybe Elijah will show up this year. Maybe Elijah will show up next year. We're waiting for him. And for 430 years, they waited. There was no prophets. There were no miracles. There were no burning bushes. Moses wasn't around. There was no ark. Of the, there, was, there, was no not, there was silence from God. We call this a dark period. 400 and some years between the end of the Old Testament and the Gospels begin. And all they did was wait. Prayed for Elijah to show. So to be fair, they were waiting for anything that looked like a reincarnated Elijah. Because if Elijah showed up, they would finally have great lives. But Elijah never showed up. In fact, no kings, prophets, no pr- there were priests, but they were cor- corrupt by this point. There was nothing. They missed what they were looking. Listen, 
They were looking for Elijah to be reincarnated so they could get their land back, their power back, out from under the oppression of these filthy Romans. But they were looking for the wrong thing. The, this Elijah that was promised to them would not be a reincarnated Elijah, but it would be somebody that looked like Elijah, not to wage war against their enemies, not to take up the sword and fight, not to give them their promised land back so that they could be saved from physical foes, but Elijah would show up to prepare the way for the Messiah who would show up. They were looking for the wrong Elijah, just like they were looking for the wrong Messiah. When John the Baptist showed up, they said, there's no way you can be Elijah. I mean, you smell like him, you look like him, you eat like him, you, you, know, you remind us of him from everything we know of the Old Testament. And, and, but they were looking for a reincarnated Elijah, and John said, you're not looking for the right person. Jesus shows up, and they go, you can't possibly be the Messiah. Messiah is going to be a larger-than-life conquering hero. You're some guy riding on a donkey with 12 vagabonds following behind you. Look for the wrong Elijah. Look for the wrong Messiah. In fact, Jesus told them they were looking in the wrong place. Did you know that? He told them they were looking for the wrong reasons. They thought John the Baptist was a crazy nut job. Look at Matthew 11. It gives us a parallel passage here. Matthew 11, verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began speaking to the crowds concerning John the Baptist. This is what Jesus says about John. What did you go out to, in the wilderness to see? What did you think you were going to find? A reed shaken by the wind, some nut job that can't stand on his own feet? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing, some king that has power and lots of armies behind him that lives in comfort? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses, Jesus said. Verse 9, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus told them who John the Baptist was. He's the guy that's going to tell you who I am. He was the voice of the one screaming in the wilderness, better get ready, you better, you better, you better get ready because the Messiah is right around the corner. The door's cracking. I'm playing, I'm waiting for the, for the entrance meeting, and I can't wait to tell you when it's finally here. He was the guy yelling the way to the fire escape because the building was burning. He was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of the person given the special privilege of pointing out the Messiah. He was the DJ at the wedding sitting on pins and needles waiting to announce the bridegroom. This is John the Baptist. He was the first to declare Jesus is the Redeemer sent from God to save us from our sins. What a privilege that would be. He was the first, no one before him. John's sole message was, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He announces the arrival of the bridegroom and he announces the plan of God for salvation. He rolls it out for all to see. When Jesus came to be baptized by him, he knew very well who he was baptizing. You remember? He said, I don't need to be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. John knew very well who he was. But to fulfill prophecy, Jesus said, no, you need to baptize me so that all can see the message that you are sending out is powerfully true. This is a lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. To be fair, this was even prophesied at John's birth. Did you know that? At John's birth, Luke 1.16, the angel says to Elizabeth, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Let me ask you a question. How do you think John the Baptist would answer the question, what makes a life great? If he were here this morning and I were to ask John the Baptist in front of us all, he was standing next to me, I would say, John the Baptist, could you please tell me, what do you think makes a life great? I'll bet your answer would be the same as mine. His answer would be something like, a life is great when it makes much of Jesus and points others to the way of salvation from their sins. I think that's what John would say, don't you? A life is great when it makes much of Jesus and points people to salvation from their sins. A life is great when it decreases in the increasing light of Jesus shining through it. But I wonder if John was right. How do you think Jesus would answer, what makes a life great? How do you think Jesus would answer? Well, I'm glad you asked, because he does answer that question. In verse 11, the same passage in, in, John that, or, uh, in John that we were just reading, in verse 11 it says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than who, church? Literally, among all those people who have ever been born of women, who is, by the way, everybody, among all those people who have been born of women, none is greater than who, church? How would you like Jesus to say that about you? I'm telling you, there's no other greater life on planet than John the Baptist. Jesus literally said, John is the best we've had since the beginning of time. Does that not blow you away? When we were doing sermon prep on this, it was like I'd read the verse before, but I started really thinking about it, thinking to myself, the maker of the universe said, this is the best that has come out of the womb. There's no greater life than John the Baptist. Holy cow. Because John the Baptist was literally the first to announce who the Messiah was, the arrival of the Messiah, and God's complete and perfect plan for the redemption of the world. This was John's whole purpose of life. And Jesus said, that is a life well lived. That is a great life. In fact, that is the greatest life. Now, lest we think too much of John, you should know John was not perfect. He was arrested. He was left in prison. He didn't see Jesus' miracles. He didn't hear Jesus' teachings. Did you know that? It's kind of a bummer way to go. He announces the Messiah, and then he's put in prison. So all the stuff he's getting is secondhand. Can you imagine? That would be like waiting to see a movie, right? You talked about it. You planned on it. You're going to be one of the crazy people outside the door waiting overnight to get first rows. Or no, not the first row, but the middle way where you have lots of leg room and popcorn's easy access in and out, right? You've got the perfect space. You're going to wait. You're going to be the first one in. And then all of a sudden the doors open and everybody goes in before you and you get left out in the rain. You don't even get into the show. John the Baptist is put into jail, doesn't get any of the benefit. He preaches it. He shows it. He gets, he's the DJ that announces, da, 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 the Messiah. What? I'm going to jail. 
And everything he gets is secondhand. He sat rotting in a dungeon. Only on the rare occasion would be allowed visitors. And everything he's getting is secondhand. He gets thrown in prison, by the way, for telling the truth. Don't you hate that when people tell the truth and get in trouble for it? John the Baptist told the truth. He told the truth about Herod and the kind of lifestyle that he led. And he told the truth about this, this pagan king and who said he was a follower of God and blah, blah, blah. And he got in trouble. And they threw him in jail. And while he was there, he rots. And he asks a question. He sends a question to Jesus. And he says this, are you the one we're waiting for or should we wait for somebody else? Now, you might read that and you might think to yourself, wait a minute, John the Baptist, what is he doing? He's not doubting his faith. Catch what he says. Are you the one we are waiting for or should we wait for someone? Not doubting his faith. What he's questioning is the, the, the circumstances that he's in cause him to ask the question, am I right about you, Jesus? Did I spend my life the right way? Am I announcing the right bridegroom? Is this, is this, am I right on this? He wanted to make sure his life counted. And you know how Jesus answered him? He didn't say yes or no. I love this about Jesus. He doesn't say, John, listen, go back and tell, because Jesus is not allowed to see John. Ah, that would be bad for the Romans, bad for the religious rulers. So the disciples of John come and ask Jesus, they said, are you the one? John's asking questions, man. He just wants to know, are you the one? Should we wait for somebody else? And Jesus doesn't say, go back and tell John, yeah, he's right. (laughs) He does better than that. You know what he does? He quotes Old Testament prophecy. And he said, go tell John. It's in Matthew 11, verse 2. Now when John heard Jesus, or when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, because he didn't see them, he only heard about them. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John, ah, this this sends tingles up my spine. Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Do you know what he said? You think you're Elijah the prophet. You think you're fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah written 700 years ago. John, you are dead right. The lame walk, the blind see, the dead are being raised. I am indeed who you say that I am. You are absolutely right. Jesus simply affirmed John's life was, has, was lived to its full potential. He was a fulfillment of this prophecy. He was the chosen DJ of God. John, Jesus said, you hit the mark. You have lived a good, no, you have lived a great life. Final question, church. What makes our lives great? Sound familiar to the question we started this with? What makes a life great? Jesus answers this for us. Did you know that? He calls us out right after he talks about John the Baptist. Back to Matthew 11, verse 11. 
Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's a, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Look at the next line, church. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Does that make you go, wait a minute. John announced, he was the first one who gets to announce the Messiah. He is literally prophesied about Isaiah in the Old Testament, written 700 years earlier. God has this plan for his life. He is the DJ at the reception. He is saying, there's the Messiah. I get to be the one to announce it. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, there are people going to come along who are greater than John the Baptist. And we're left to think to ourselves, wait a minute, if he's the greatest that there is, how can there be a word after greatest? I mean, it's good, great, greatest, right? John is the greatest. According to Jesus, there's one more. The, what would we call it? The greatest est. The, the most fantastic of all time. There are greater people to come, Jesus says. How can someone be greater? Are we supposed to sell everything that we have and move to the wilderness? Eat locusts and honey and dress in camel skins? Because I don't want to do that, do you? Doesn't excite me in the least. This is not what Jesus asks us to do. What Jesus is saying is that there are greater people who come along because they will take the message that John started and they will carry it to the ends of the earth. They will carry it throughout all time. They will stand up with their lives and declare through their lives, there is the Messiah. Jesus is the one sent from God to be the savior of the world. There is one who can rescue us from sin, and it's Jesus Christ. We take the message of the greatest man who ever lived, and we live it constantly in our lives, and in doing so, we become greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because we get to do it all our lives long. We have the power of the Holy Spirit that's not only compelling us to say the message, but who is making us look like Jesus on a regular basis. There's not one Jesus walking through the door in Jerusalem. There's not one Jesus coming down the banks of the Jordan. There's not one Jesus breaking bread and only the people who are admitted can see him. There is Jesus in the lives of his followers all around the world throughout all time carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ to anybody who wants to hear it. There are greater people than John the Baptist because basically church, we do much more with the message than John the Baptist ever did. John the Baptist didn't even see the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? He would have, uh, I fly fish a lot, and when you catch a big fish, there's a phrase, you say you poop your waders, all right? This is how John the Baptist would have responded at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. With such excitement and such, can you imagine? But he was gone by then. His head was taken off his shoulders by that point. But we take the message of John and we simply declare it with our lives. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. John's life pointed to Jesus and to his plan. And our, our lives, church, our lives are great. In fact, greater than John the Baptist. Because we take the whole story of the gospel and we get to proclaim it to a world still lost in the dark. The greatest lives make the most out of Jesus. The greatest lives make, the, make much of Jesus. Who is the least in the kingdom of heaven? 
those who continue the life and purpose of John the Baptist, those who continue to decrease so Jesus can increase. So what? Number one, the definition we have of a great person needs a little tweaking. We have a tendency to look at our lives and say to ourselves, what makes a great person might lead a little tweaking. John goes the way of most other Old Testament prophets, by the way. He's killed, he's persecuted, he's thrown into dungeons, and then he's killed. A lot of prophets have had that happen. And people might look at John the Baptist and say, oh, what a waste of a life. If only he could have kept on his message. If only he could have seen the churches being built. He never saw one church in his life. If only he could have been one of the pastors or the missionaries that could travel the world and wow people and have throngs of people come forward when the invitation was given. He could have been our very first Billy Graham. John the Baptist would have been an amazing person to listen to. But he was killed before Jesus, before he ever got to see any of Jesus' miracles. And the world would say, what a waste. A life wasted in the wilderness and a life rotting away in a dungeon. Little worldly gain to show, tough life of preaching and teaching day after day, hated by the authorities of the day, and once Jesus shows up, he loses all his followers. He's got a ton of followers. Jesus shows up and he goes, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know what happened? All his followers go, okay, and they all left. What a waste. Couldn't even hang on to his own disciples. They all go follow Jesus. There's a better show in town, we might say. Then he goes to prison, and he has his head cut off because of a lascivious dance done by some pagan person in front of some hedonistic king and a vengeful lady that says, eh, give me the head of John the Baptist. There's nowhere in the Internet that anybody would ever write down that John the Baptist lived a great life. And yet, some may disagree with Jesus when Jesus says, no, this is the greatest life ever. What made John truly great? He was willing to let go of everything. He was willing to not let anything get in the way of Jesus Christ. We have the ability to have a greater life than John. We have the presence of Jesus in us constantly so that we cannot let anything get in the way of Jesus Christ. God sends us into difficult places to do difficult things with our lives, just like he did with John the Baptist. Having that happen to us doesn't mean our lives are not worthy. We may have to go into a difficult job, a difficult school situation, a difficult marriage, a difficult relationship with our kids, difficulty with our finances, difficulty with our cars, I don't know, whatever. We have difficulties all the way through life. But in all circumstances, our lives would be great if we just remember he must increase, and I must decrease. Every difficult situation we walk into, if that's our motto, can, we can have an amazing impact. So don't get caught up in what the world says a great life is. In fact, please, be careful of any group, any church, any nation, any organization, any people group that make themselves out to be great without including Jesus Christ. That is not greatness. That is a long-standing, temporary, satisfying moment that will not last, and it will be forgotten in two years. 
But if you make your life about Jesus Christ, making him great and you least, according to Jesus, you've lived a great life. And someday when I see him, I hope that he tells me that. I hope to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus had a conversation with Peter after Jesus rose from the dead. You may not know this, it's in John chapter 21. Peter was wondering about how his life was going to go. Jesus told him, I forgive you three times. He said, do you love me? I've told you this story before. It's a powerful story. Peter said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And he said again, Peter, just wondering, do you love me? Peter goes, listen, you asked me the question already. Yes, I love you. Good, feed my sheep. And he asked him a third time, do you love me? And I think he asked him three times because he wanted Peter to know he heard him deny him three times. And he's, and he's letting him off the hook. He's forgiving him. And every time he says, good, then we're good. You and me, we're good. Now get busy and feed my sheep. Why? Because that's a great life. It's a life well lived. You know what Peter does next? As Peter's walking along the beach, John's tailing in the background. John the Apostle, not John the Baptist. He's by that point. John, John the Apostle's walking behind them. So Peter's going, all right, all right, you're giving me the job. I got to feed your sheep. Fine, that's good. I'll do it. But what about that guy? Here's how it goes. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You know why? Because Peter was about to live a very difficult life. History tells us that Peter wouldn't shut up with the gospel. They tried to shut him up. They beat him. They finally put him in prison, and they brought him out for one reason, so that they could crucify him. You know what Peter said? I'm not worthy to be crucified. Don't do that. Crucify me upside down. History says he was crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die like Jesus. And before that happened, they killed his family in front of him. Peter was in for a devastating future. And Peter said, okay, so that's, that's mine. But what about John? And Jesus said, you worry about what I have planned for you. Don't miss it. Don't miss the purpose of your life. I've got, I've got big, the world will look at you and they'll say, that is a wasted life. Don't believe them for an instant. You do what I've called you to do. You do it boldly, you do it unashamedly, and you do it constantly. I'll take care of John. Our life paths are all different. You go through stuff I don't go through, I go through stuff you don't go through. But in all of our lives, if you want to live a great life, you do it all for the glory of God. All of it. No matter what comes. Number one. Number two, this is the really good news. You cannot miss a great life with Jesus. <laughs> I've, I crossed 50 not that long ago. And I'm not telling you when, but it wasn't that long ago. Most of you were there, I'll just tell you that. One of the things that I experience at mid-age, although 50 isn't mid-age, isn't it? I'll be lucky if I got 20 years left. But anyway, whatever I got left, I cross this line and I start thinking to myself, did I miss it? 
Did I miss what God really had planned for my life? Did I settle for something secondary? Everybody who goes through a midlife crisis asks themselves the same thing. Did I waste my life? Did I pursue the wrong thing? Did I get the right degree? How did I end up being a garbage man? That's not what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be an astronaut. Everybody asks that question. Did I waste it? Did I miss it? Michael Jordan didn't miss a mark. He was great at what he did. Billy Graham didn't miss a mark. He was great at what he did. Tiger Woods didn't miss a mark. He was great in most things. <laughs> every man may have some foibles. Every person may have some foibles. But those people seem to hit the mark, right? They did what they did, and they did it really well. A great life. Listen, if this message is true, and it absolutely is, you can't miss greatness in life. You can't miss it. You want to live a great life? You just take the message of John the Baptist, and you carry it through the rest of your life. Whatever circles you are in, you point people to Jesus, you decrease, he increases. My life is about decreasing so Jesus can increase. I hit the mark of greatness every time. You may not be a pastor, you may be a businessman, you may be a teacher, you may be a firefighter, you may be a, a lawyer, you may be a nurse. But whatever your job is, you can be great. You may not be great at your job, like as great as Jim who works right next to you, but being great at your job is never, I don't know if I've ever done a funeral where I say, this person was really good at their profession. I usually say, this person is a really good person. And the thing that makes you really great according to Jesus is if your life is about decreasing so that his can increase. My life is about temporary things that shine the light on me and my ability so I can be happy in this life. My purpose is temporary. It won't last. Can you imagine the DJ of a wedding? When the reception comes, <laughs> can you imagine that DJ announcing, this is the bridegroom and this is the bride. Congratulations, everybody claps and they come out to the floor. And then the DJ says, let's get this party started. And he starts turning up the music and then he goes on and he starts dancing around the floor. And he says, look at me, I got these great moves. I'll teach anybody to dance because you all stink and I can teach you the right way to do it. Hang on, the bride had some music planned for us to play. I don't like her playlist. Let me put on my playlist. He puts on his playlist, starts dancing around the floor. How long before the father gets mad at the DJ? When does the father of the bride who paid for this Yahoo, when does he start thinking to himself, this guy's got about three minutes to clean it up or he's out of here? He's ruined the prime event. He missed the whole purpose of the celebration. It's not to bring light on him and his abilities. It is to give all the attention in the spotlight to the bride and the bridegroom. That is his job. He doesn't realize the story is about the bride and the groom, and that's what we're celebrating. Not his temporary skills that last for three minutes on a dance floor. But a lot of people live their lives that way. They cry for the light to be put on them, the attention to be given to them, and for a temporary period of time, everybody looks at them and goes, wow, they're pretty good, but eventually they just get on your nerves. The job of us is the same job as John had. Our lives are to give the attention where it should go, on the bridegroom 
and on his bride. If my life is about Jesus, my purpose is eternal. John found the gold. John found the mine. I just get to come along and chip away and take some gold nuggets for myself. This is why Paul said, all my life is about knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection, which brings me to the last point. If my life is about Jesus' story, my impact will remain. If my life is about his life, my impact will remain. Jesus calls this bearing fruit in John 15. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Or another word is remain. So that whatever you ask in the Father's name, he may give to you. The greatest lives are the lives that make much of Jesus. So, church, what makes your life great? What is a great life? Well, it depends on who you ask. Will you go by Jesus' definition or the world's definition? I would suggest that we make our lives about Jesus' definition, period. And may the epitaph of every great life be that it made much of Jesus and less of themselves. That's what it means to be really great. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the time we had together to talk through John the Baptist. Blows me away that he was defined by you personally as the greatest ever born. His message was simple. To point those around him to you. May our lives be just as great as we do that ourselves. And in doing so, may we bear fruit that remains. Not a temporary spotlight that shines on us, but a burning blaze of a life well lived for you so that all that see us may know you are the leader of our lives. We are your followers. We are your servants. And in doing that, may we be the least that you say in your, in your explanation of John the Baptist, may we be the least in the kingdom greater than he. Help us to not waste our time, but to get about the business of bearing fruit that lasts. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.